In the latter half or the latter portion of the book of Genesis, we get the story of Joseph. And Joseph and his brothers, the technicolor coat, we know all about that. Uh, but we get the story of Joseph and his movement uh, from uh, the favored one to someone who is a slave to once again being favored to being back in prison and finally to again arriving to be second of all of Egypt. And this encounter that he has with his brothers uh, is, is a really powerful part of the story that I want us to look at this morning. So in Genesis 45, we read, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to reserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me fathers to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household, all who belong to you, will become destitute. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, this is a classic story, a classic child book, story book, uh, uh, Bible uh, book, uh, kind of story that we get a hold of here in the Bible and every kid's Bible little storybook has it in there and we see the, the pretty coat, the coat of many colors and uh, we find that Joseph in here has the ability to interpret dreams and he rises to power and, and then there's a family reunion and he saves the day and, and Joseph declares this was all God's doing and they all live happily ever after. So happy in fact that you can get a Broadway play out of this. Uh, it is a great story for a child's Bible and it should be. But as adults in the church, we usually tell the story of Joseph and of Genesis as an admirable moment of forgiveness, reconciliation, and catharsis. And there are elements of that here that we can learn from, no doubt. But if that is the depth of our interpretation, we really do miss the theological and emotional complexity of this passage if we simply allow Joseph to become a paragon of mercy. We also miss the challenge of Jesus regarding telling us how we should live in Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain that Jeff read for us earlier. We miss, if we are not careful here, and we leave this to the children's Bible storybooks, we miss the challenge that Joseph seems to have experienced in coming to a place of forgiveness, of coming to understand the role of God in his life without attributing the bad things that happened to him to, him, to God and becoming simply a, a pawn of salvation history. And so Joseph's just another movement in what God is doing in the world. That is true, but it's not simple. In the full story, Joseph does not end up 
acting and living in a manner uh, different than many would have acted in his position. Joseph wades through a morass of theological and emotional issues to come to that place of forgiveness, reconciliation, and even faith. Joseph lives different than most people might have in this situation because he does come to forgiveness. He does come to this theological maturity in this situation. But to assume that it was somehow easy peasy for him to do because God directed it and moved it there is really to miss out what's going on here. It simply makes God a puppet master then and takes Joseph almost out of the story. And it's to miss an example that perhaps can relate to our experiences as human beings. In the passage from the Sermon on the Plain, as I said, Jeff read for us early, earlier, uh, we find Jesus calling on us to live different. He starts off with saying, love your enemies. And that love there, that word, we all know there's three words for love in the Bible, maybe more than that, but at least three. And, and this is the agape word. This is where we have an active feeling of benevolence and seeking only the best for our enemies. We're to be good to them. We're to be kind to them. Now, we understand we may not get philo and eros love here. That is brotherly love. We may not become best buds. But in fact, we are to seek the best for our enemies. We're to bless those who curse us. That's a good on you. You curse us, but I wish you nothing but good. We're to pray for those who mistreat us and not pray that God strikes them with lightning. That's not the prayer we're looking for here, but we're to pray for good for them. We're to turn the other cheek. We don't even want to begin there. Who's going to do that? We're to give to those who rob us. If they take our, our cloak, we're supposed to give them our shirt also. In, in, in that day and age, uh, a person was not able, if you owed them a debt, they were not allowed to take your tunic. They could take your cloak, but they were not allowed to take your tunic. And they had to give it back to you at the evening time so that you could stay warm. Jesus says, just give it to them. Give to those who take and don't demand it back. Don't stand on your rights. Do it to others as you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies, he says again, and do good. Lend with them and don't expect repayment. Be merciful. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that that's hard. That's really hard stuff. I think one of the major challenges to the relevance of the church today is that we don't often behave or look much different than everyone else. In our office, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and maybe even in our churches, we don't necessarily stand out as being different, as being the kind of person that Jesus calls us to be in this Sermon on the Plain. We love our friends and maybe even sometimes our families. Jesus tells us even sinners do that. Even sinners will do that. We hold on to what is ours and we only lend to those who we know are going to pay us back and hopefully with interest. After all, that's only reasonable this day and age. You just can't start giving stuff away. We build walls around ourselves that says, you can't touch me. You will stay away from me, much less have my other cheek if you hit me on one of them. We wait for others to do for us what we want before we do for them. Treat me well and I'll treat you well. Jesus says it's the other way around. I love the quote from Rosa Parks. It says, nothing in the golden rule says that others will treat us as we have treated them. It only says that we must treat the other the way we would want to be treated. That's a lot. 
Don't they, shouldn't they be nice to me before I'm nice to them? Can't we just avoid each other? And we're not to judge or condemn. We're simply to forgive. And yet, why wouldn't I judge and condemn? It's so easy to see the problems that everyone else seems to have. And, and maybe they need me to tell them about that. And maybe they need to get themselves right before I begin to forgive them. This Christian ethic that Jesus is giving us of treat others first, to do these kind of things, it's a positive ethic. It consists in us doing, or in us in not doing, but put things in context. That we are in fact supposed to be out, being active in doing this, not waiting for something to happen, an equal exchange to occur. The golden rule is do to others. There are some things like this in ancient writings that says, uh, don't do to someone what you don't want done to you. Jesus says it's just the opposite. You actually have to be active in making these things happen. The ethic is built on the extra thing that we are going to do. Because what credit is it to us if we do the regular thing that everyone else does? Yeah, you love your friends. You'll loan to those who can pay back to you. Jesus says there's no credit in that. We are to do the extra thing. Listen, we all know that's a hard way to live and be. Uh, I've had to live with this sermon all week, and, and I understand my shortcomings in this. Jesus didn't want us to be just to say, we will, we will do it when it's okay for us. He didn't want us to acknowledge uh, uh, that, well, in this world it's okay. He really wanted us to be in congruity with his teaching. In my first church that I was pastor of, there was a woman who, just a dear woman named Juanita, very small woman. She and her husband farmed thousands of acres, and, and she was honest, if nothing else. Uh, she just said, when I would get to these passages and be teaching these in the church and would be talking about them, she'd just say, I can't do that. I don't believe Jesus meant that. Well, after a period of time, we talked, she, she, and, and we continued to teach and work with one another, and, and she said, okay, I can believe that Jesus meant I was supposed to do that, but I can't do it and I'm not going to. I appreciated her honesty. She was the one person who said, I'm not going to do that. I don't know if I was that honest at that time that I don't always do that. She said, Jesus doesn't intend me to be walked over. No, he intends you to love your enemy. That's hard stuff. If we are to live different, Maybe we can go back and learn something from Joseph on, on how you can pull this off because it is hard stuff and see if we can learn anything from Joseph because I think Joseph really went through the emotional and theological stress that living this way presents. First, we need to probably realize that Joseph was more like us than, than maybe the children's books led on. He isn't necessarily up there on that pedestal, just that paragon of mercy and love and forgiveness. He was a lot more like us. In fact, we know that from his early days as a child, Joseph was a bragger and arrogant. You can almost see, can you not, that he got what he deserved. My goodness, running around the coats and telling the coat and telling his brothers, uh, I had this dream, you're going to bow down to me. All you older brothers, this is what you're going to do. So Joseph was a little bit of a braggart and, and arrogant, and probably we wouldn't have liked him if he was our little brother. Joseph was also smart, though. And he was ambitious, and he did well. He was a person of principle at times. Uh, we know that when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he says no. We don't know if he said no really because he's a person of principle or he's afraid to get caught. But either way, 
He stands on his principle and he rejects her advances. And he's put in prison and left in prison because of that. Well, he does well in prison. He becomes kind of a leader in prison, but he's still in prison. And then he helps the baker and the cupbearer. They have dreams in prison. They've been thrown in prison by, by the uh, uh, Pharaoh also. And so uh, they have dreams and he interprets them. And he says to them now, you're going to get out of prison in the next three days. One of you is going to get, die getting out. But the other one's going to go and go back and serve the Pharaoh again. The cupbearer is. And he said, remember me to the Pharaoh. Well, we all know what the cupbearer does. He doesn't do anything to mention Joseph. Why? I'm just backing a good thing myself. Why would I help Joseph out? And so Joseph stays in prison for another two years. And then the Pharaoh has his dream. And Joseph is able to interpret it. The cupbearer remembers him now, and he's able to interpret it. And we all know the story. There's going to be a famine. Joseph comes in, saves the day, interprets the dreams, and really makes Egypt a powerhouse of, of having grain and being able to manage this, this famine that's going on. So now the famine's going on, and here come his brothers who are coming because they have no food, who are coming to hopefully buy food so they don't die. His brother shows up, and Joseph recognizes them, and he remembers his dreams about them. Now, you'll notice if you read the story all the way through, Joseph doesn't immediately say, oh, my brothers, I love you. Come, I forgive you. We're all one big happy family. No, he doesn't doesn't do that at all. They, he recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. And so he says, okay, here's the food, uh, but you guys are spies. Yeah, that's what you are. You're spies. And so you should be, oh, we're not spies. Our father's at home with our younger brother, Benjamin. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to keep one of you. You go and you bring them back. You bring your younger brother back, and then I'll, uh, we'll talk about it. We'll see if you're okay or not. And so he keeps Simeon he makes the brothers feel like they're being punished by God. Judah says, it is because of what we did to Joseph many years ago that this is happening to us. So Joseph is not necessarily fostering good feelings here. And so we know what happens. Benjamin comes back and, and over Jacob's uh, uh, objections, or Israel's now called Israel, subjections, they bring Benjamin back, the brothers do. And Joseph says, great, gives them their food and puts his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And so a day away, he goes and says, why have you robbed from me? Uh, this is a terrible thing you've done. You've got to become my slave, Benjamin. And Judah says, no, don't do this. It'll kill my father to lose another younger son. Don't do this. I will become your slave. And so can you get the dynamics that are going on here? The emotions that Joseph is playing on, the fear that Joseph is creating, do you think he's enjoying it? Do you think he's thinking that I'm getting a little bit of my revenge now? If you read in here, Joseph does a lot of crying during this story around his brothers. He's emotionally very distraught. These are the ones who sold me into slavery in Egypt. Finally, Joseph, in the story we read, reveals himself. There is a union and a restoration, and everyone lives happily ever after. Well, maybe it doesn't get quite to that point, but it gets closer. How did Joseph get to this point of being able to forgive these people who have sold him into Egypt? There is no cheap forgiveness here. If we are going to practice the kind of things that Jesus called on us to do, we cannot practice cheap forgiveness. Joseph says twice to his brothers, you sold me into Egypt. 
He says, here's what's going on in our community. Here's what's going on in our family. And Joseph begins to reinterpret his own suffering. You sold me into Egypt. Yes, you are guilty. You have blame. But God did something different with that. And so he begins to reinterpret his suffering as providential. Somehow God is using these things, not causing them, but God is using these evil things done by his brothers to bring about good. Joseph is able to reframe his catastrophe, to reinterpret horrible events within this larger framework of God at work in our world. And he creates a new narrative from his traditions. Individuals and communities who can do that are often able to survive and thrive in the face of real challenges. In fact, narrative retelling in our lives and our communities is necessary for life to emerge after horrible events. Most people have had real challenges in their lives. Most people have had loss, frustration, feelings of failure. If we cannot reinterpret that narrative and find somehow that even in the midst of that, God can be at work, it's a tough place to be. Such processes of recovery and renewal are often long in the doing. This is lifetime work. Joseph just didn't immediately say, hey, everything's okay. It is long in the doing, and it requires creative reuse of the past to be effective and to enable new life to emerge. It is in this process of reinscribing our lives again and again that the Bible talks about, believing somehow that God can be at work. Joseph does this when he forgives his brothers, and he sets their lives within the context of divine providence. Human evil, God has been at work doing good. And so in all of our lives, we are blessed by the work of God. The power to forgive must be in the hands of the one who has been wronged. Joseph has to do the forgiveness here. Joseph struggles with this, just as many of us struggle with this issue of forgiveness. Joseph really doesn't come to it very quickly. He plays on their fears. He exploits his power over them. But finally, he comes to the place to observe that God is the primary actor, the primary agent in the drama of life. Not in the evil that's been done to Joseph, but in the situations of overcoming and the outcomes that get produced. We call that faith. Faith in God that somehow, even in the midst of our most challenging situations, God can bring about good things. Providence, God at work. Joseph sees the deeper meaning and purpose in life. God used their evil intentions for good. Faith, not God causing bad, but faith in God who can bring good even out of difficult situations is where Joseph comes to. This is not a simple place to come to. Joseph opens himself to a larger reality, to his life in relationship to God, the giver of all good things, and it enables him to be kind to his brothers and forgive them. To forgive after becoming or being a victim of betrayal or crime is not a required thing in life. It's not something we can just turn on and say, well, I've got to do it. It's okay. It cannot be something that's trite. It's not okay when evil is suffered. And it is not in God's plan. But Jesus does direct us to live different. Because it is good for us. And it is good for the community. When we can forgive, it is a sign that healing has begun. It is beginning to start. It is underway. It can be a lifetime work. 
If you go back to chapter 50 of Genesis, you will see that Jacob dies. They're all in, the, the family is now in, in the land of Goshen in Egypt. Jacob dies, and what happens? The brothers are frightened. What will Joseph do to us now that Jacob is not here? And they send in a, a, a word to Joseph and say, now, Dad told us to tell you that once he's not here anymore, we should all get along and, be, and you should do good for us. Obviously, Joseph had not made such repair with them by this time that they felt totally comfortable in his forgiveness. It was not a smooth reunion, but it was a movement forward. Just as in our lives, when forgiveness enacts at times, it can be a lifetime to get that done. But it is movement forward. Back to that idea of Jesus has about us living different, the way that we're supposed to do it. How do we interpret our lives in terms of God, in terms of faith, in terms of providence, so that we can do things like love our enemies? I think it requires that we understand we too can be judged, we too can be condemned, and we too stand in need of forgiveness, just like everyone else does. We need to understand our, our lives in the light of mercy and forbearance and the forgiveness of God. To do these kind of things make us actually like God when we practice forgiveness. Like Joseph, we have purpose in life, to preserve life, to love life, to be the very presence of God. We are reminded there in verse 38 of Luke chapter 6, we're reminded that Whatever we use in our measure, so we will be measured with. This is a, a trite verse of the prosperity gospel. Oh, God's going to give you more than you could ever imagine. You know, uh, send in that dollar, I'll buy the jet, and somehow God will bless you with that. That's not what this is about. This is about forgiveness. This is about mercy. This is about love. Jesus calls on us to live different because it is in that different living. It is in that life of forgiveness and mercy and love and giving that we find ourselves forgiven. We find mercy for ourselves. We find ourselves loved. And in the midst of that relationship with God, we will find the resources we need to replenish our lives with what we expend in being the loving instruments, forgiving instruments of God. Amen.